Welcome to Florida. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, 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 can't you line it? Oh, shack-a-lack-a-lack-a-lack-a-lack-a-lack-a. <clears throat> can't you move it? Zora Neale Hurston in song. Throughout this week's episode of Welcome to Florida, we will be listening to original recordings of Zora Neale Hurston from the 1930s. This was a job she took with the Works Progress Administration recording African-American folk tales and songs in Florida. Hurston, born in Notasulga, Alabama, January 7, 1891, moved to Eatonton, Florida when she was a toddler. We will be hearing Shove It Over as we are now. Uncle Bud during the episode and at the very end a particularly bawdy tune called simply Tampa. These are all in the state archives of Florida. An entire album of the work can be found there and linked to in the show notes. Can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author Craig Pittman. He is also an environmental reporter, and that's where we start today. My name is Chad Scott, and Craig's latest column for the Florida Phoenix is one that particularly interested me for a lot of re- it's environmental, it's democracy, it's legislature, it's super Florida. And it's about and chickens. Yeah, oh, chickens, don't forget yes. the chickens. <laughs> and it's about and and with that as a teaser, most people may know now that we're going to talk about Key West, and this has to do with cruise ships. Cruise ships have been very controversial there. They bring in thousands of people every day. I mean, they're 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 getting in three of these ginormous cruise mm-hmm. ships every day, dropping off thousands of people, and and they would pass down this long channel, the six mile long channel that was fairly narrow Mm -hmm. and that runs near the coral reef. And when uh, COVID-19 shut down the cruise ships, people noticed that A, the loss of all those passengers flooding into the town really wasn't making much of a difference in their economy. Mm -hmm. And B, they noticed that the water quality around the island was much, much cleaner now. And the fishermen actually reported that their catch was improving. And that sort of fueled this grassroots campaign that was that brought up a referendum in the November ballot to impose some limits on the cruise ships that they couldn't drop off as many people anymore, and that they would uh, there would be a sort of a cap on that, and that they would give preference to the cruise lines that had better health and safety records. And it, yeah. all three of these things passed by overwhelming margins, and the legislature now wants to step in and overturn everything. And there's a bill in the in the legislature, one in the Senate and their companion in the in the House, to say that we're going to take the authority over this stuff away from yeah. the mm-hmm. the port there and give it to the state. And mm-hmm. you know there are 15 ports in Florida, uh, scattered all over the you know Pensacola to to Key West, Miami, Jacksonville, mm-hmm. and so forth. One by me in Port of Fernandina, mm-hmm. and they're all run by local government agencies, and they've been like that for 200 years. The Key West port dates back to 1828. And suddenly the legislature is saying, well, we think this is this patchwork system is bad for business. And so we're going to take the authority away from them. And I read over the bill and said, wait a minute. Um, Who are you going to give it to, though? You take the authority away from the local governments. 
who gets it? Because <laughs> the bill yeah, doesn't yeah. say it just says it's now in charge. Now the state's in charge of that. So I gave some suggestions and then promptly shot them all down. And yeah. it turned out, apparently, it was all based on a misunderstanding of what the Florida Ports Council is. Somebody thought that was a state agency. And it's actually a, an association of the different local mm-hmm. government port agencies. So. Because Key West is such a tourist attraction destination, we tend to maybe think about it as bigger than it is. And and you highlight this great in the piece. It's a city of 28,000 people. Prior to COVID, 1 million cruise visitors a year. Forget all the people yeah. coming by land or, or coming by airplane. Just a million people embarking, de-embarking a year on cruise mm-hmm. ship, which is an enormous, enormous number. And for folks who don't know, uh, cruise ships are an ecological disaster. Uh, Craig talked about you have to channel for them from, you know, the, the I guess that would, you'd be channeling, do they come through the Gulf or the Atlantic? I guess it doesn't really matter. Both, um, I think. <laughs> but you are dredging and then the amount of pollution they put out, air pollution through the smokestacks. Obviously, you've got all the human and food waste and other waste that these floating cities generate. They are ecologically terrible, but this uh, state legislator who wanted to take this local uh, authority away from Key West and all the ports, obviously, is is in the pocket of the cruise ship industry, which in Florida, needless to say, is is very powerful and very prominent. And it, it just struck me as very funny that the bill that they were rushing it through and it was it said, yes, we're going to take your power away and give it to the state. Okay, but who at the state? Who? Mm-hmm. And I kept asking people and they're like, well, uh, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about something else. So yeah. I, I, well, uh, let's just say I made Shoot first aim later. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's very <laughs> typical of this. And it, it reminds me of a, of a conversation we recently had on the podcast about uh, Florida Forever, about yeah. the attempt to give felons voting rights back, the $15 an hour minimum wage time and time again, and and you have obviously been in Florida for a long time covering Mm -hmm. the uh, legislature and how things work. I have only been doing so for in earnest the past couple of months. And this, I I don't want to call it a trend because it's longer than a trend. Let's call it this behavior. Uh, It's a habit. Yeah. It's a habit. How about that? (laughs) Habit of the state, which is largely conservative, largely Republican, the legislature anyways, reeling back oftentimes progressive anti-development, pro-conservation, pro-environmental uh, measures from the, the felon voting to Florida forever to the $15 minimum wage, schoolroom sizes. That is an ongoing tug of war, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the voters pass these things by an overwhelming margin and the legislature says, you know, I, I kind of compare them to the, the French archaeologist and Raiders of the Lost, Lost Ark who says, anything you find, I can take. And yeah. so yeah. anything anything the voters pass, the legislature says, yeah, nice try, but slap. And they, well, they and, slap back. And it, it doesn't work in the other direction because those same legislatures are very keen on promoting home rule when it comes to development. And no, no, the state can't can't say yeah. no to, uh, you know, height variances and how close you can build things together and, and the amount of development. That's that it, it's important that home rule really matters. And MCORs, you know, the roads to ruin is another example of this, where these communities are saying, we don't want this. And the state yeah. is coming along. Well, we'll tell you what you want. Yeah, I'll I tell think, you what, I think when it comes think to development. The, yeah, they heads you win, tails 
<laughs> they lose, you know, it, yeah. it, it's just astonishing. Mm. Yeah. The, I think six counties now, six of the rural counties are supposed to be helped by the toll roads have said, we don't want anything to do with those toll roads. Yeah, we, we like our, we yeah, like our place the way it is. Conservatives but. love to talk about home rule and uh, local voters and local voices and, and local opinions matter and, and limited state government and, you know, get your hands out of my pocketbook and all that kind of stuff until it comes to development. Then they want in and they want more and they want it every which way but loose, whether it's cruise terminals in Key West or the roads to ruin or any other thing that, that takes place in this state. Now, we want to remind you that Welcome to Florida is sponsored by Hip Camp, and Hip Camp is a growing community of respectful people looking to get outside for camping, glamping, and RV stays on private land. Anyone with a property that helps people connect with nature in Florida can be a Hip Camp host. Now, again, that can be down in the Keys. It can be up by me on Amelia Island. It can be by Craig in St. Pete and uh, Tampa Bay area. Wherever you are, whether you've got a little yurt in your backyard or a farm, odds are someone in the hip camp community wants to leave the frigid, freezing, snowy, frosty north and spend a little time in Florida connecting with nature. And that's where you come in. Hip Camp's going to take care of all of the logistics, all of the insurance. All you've got to do is have the place and get started today at hipcamp.com slash land. Our guest today, Christy Anderson, is the producer of Zora Neale Hurston. The documentary film is called Jump at the Sun. It is on Amazon. Craig, you've recently watched it. How about uh, playing a little uh, Roger Ebert here for us? Or Gene yeah, Siskel, I, if you prefer. I watched it on Amazon Prime, and it's it's really good. I thought I knew the out, I knew sort of at least the broad outlines of Zora Neale Hurston's life as a as a writer and as a sort of a Florida icon. And there was a lot in there I did not know, things that I was surprised to learn. I thought it really did a nice job of capturing her personality, too, her sort of outsized enthusiasm and, and uh, her ability to... Uh, to speak her mind. Yeah. Uh, there's one guy quoted in there who says she could tell you to go to hell and you'd enjoy the trip. Summed <laughs> it up pretty well. Great <laughs> quote. Reminding you once more about Hip Camp. If you've got a place you want to share across the state, hipcamp.com slash land. Again, Zora Neal Hurston, Jump at the Sun. Our guest is producer and writer Christy Anderson. How did you get interested in doing a documentary about about Zora Neale Hurston? Had you read all of her books or had you just read Their Eyes Were Watching God or, or what? I had actually not read a single book by Zora Neale Hurston. When I read a biography of Zora Neale Hurston by Bob Hemingway, who's a scholar, he mentioned film footage and he mentioned radio interviews, um, audio recordings, and as a documentary filmmaker, I thought, oh my gosh, here is this woman who's writing about the Black South, and she's actually going out and shooting film footage. That's what got me interested in it, and I was able to help the Library of Congress find some of the film footage that hadn't been located, just because I was so persistent. Some of the film had been, had been kind of sort of lost in the stacks? Is that what it was? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Margaret Mead had an office at the um, Museum of Natural History. She was going to make a Department of Anthropology or an Anthropology Gallery. And so every anthropologist around gave Margaret Mead their film footage and their whatever documents. And she never got around to doing that. But uh, she did give a box 
full of stuff to the Library of Congress. And so when I started realizing, wow, we're missing some of this film footage that was shot in South Carolina of the church and the church service, I talked to the Library of Congress, uh, this woman, Arlene Balkansky, and I said, you know, is there any chance you know where this is? And she said, well, all we have is these boxes, but some of the boxes of film say what the date is. And the dates coincided with the letters that I found that related to the uh, project. So it was a great, and that's part of um, that's part of the Library of Congress's most important films that they have is Zora Neale Hurston's films. Why are they considered so important? For one reason, not very many people were interested in the Black South when Zora Neale Hurston decided to document it, not just taking uh, photos and uh, film footage, but actually gathering their folklore and gathering their folk tales. Nobody thought these people were worth documenting. And Zora Neale Hurston did, luckily for all of us, because there's not a treasure trove. There's some footage out there of Black folks in the cities, but not a lot of footage from when Zora Neale Hurston was shooting footage and gathering her folk tales Because, you know, Margaret Mead went to Papua New Guinea and uh, Franz Boas went to Alaska. Well, Zora Neale Hurston went home. She went to the Black South, back to Florida. And she also shot in Alabama. She knew that there was value in these folk tales, these stories. She ended up with a camera from this woman, Charlotte Mason, who was funding during the Harlem Renaissance, different people like Zora. Just a, there wasn't a lot of people. I mean, you had to know how to shoot footage with a wind-up camera. I've got one over here I could show you. <laughs> you really have to understand your F-stops and all that. And so it was really remarkable that Zora Neale Hurston did what she did. For folks coming to this material and this story fresh like I am, tell us about this film. How much was shot? When was it shot? And and what does it show? It was done very anthropologically. Even if they were taking a photo, they would have a piece of paper, I think, with their name on it or their age. She was almost recording those people as uh, she would a photo. And then she recorded them playing games. And these are the kind of games, you know, in your front yard that you play. These aren't games like a board game or whatever. This is the 19, this is 1928 when she's uh, shooting this footage. So, you know, she's really trying to capture something unique about these people and the towns that they're in, the buildings that they're in. Front porches, she would shoot somebody sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair. And uh, she was trying to show a different life than what she had been experiencing in the Harlem Renaissance, right before she left. And it's interesting because Zora Neale is associated with the Harlem Renaissance, but she hardly spent any time in Harlem. (laughs) (laughs) You answered my biggest question about her because she's always referred to as an author and anthropologist. And of course, the author part is easy to understand from the books, but I had always wondered where does this anthropology title come from? And, And there it is, these films she shot around Uh, the South and Florida, documenting these people. Well, she was also trained as an anthropologist by Franz Boas, the father of modern anthropologists. 
So the old style anthropology said white folks down here, native folks, and Franz Boas says all cultures have value. And he changed it to a horizontal ladder. So she was able with that kind of confirmation of her ethnicity, of her culture, she was able to embrace what a lot of people really didn't see as culture. You know, it's really interesting, too, because she's a a Black woman in a car in the 1920s, very uncommon. She goes into the Black South, and she pretends to be a bootlegger at one point, Mm. and the girlfriend of some guy, and different things. And she was really, there could have been a gazillion things that could have happened to her that were, she, her life was in danger. And she had a pearl handled revolver that she put, that she had under her seat, according to a couple of people who told me that. So she was trained as an anthropologist and the uh, later session, film session in South Carolina was funded by Margaret Mead. How much of an influence on her do you think did her hometown have? I mean, she grew up in this, the first all black incorporated city in America. Her dad was a preacher and the mayor. Although she grew up in the in the rural South, she had a somewhat different upbringing than the majority of black kids from that time. That is one of the reasons why she was probably so unique. And Eatonville, being an all black town, you don't see too many black and white deviations. I didn't get into my film with this, but she used to sit on the lamp post or the road post waiting for white tourists to come by so that they'd pick her up because she'd, you know, be on the side of the road, you know, chasing them and they'd take her around town, you know. So she um, had a different experience with white people, or at least she says that she did. Now, that's been challenged. You know, at one point she goes to a doctor in Harlem. This is about what's great about Zora. She claims that her worst racist experiences were in Harlem. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that was not the message that was being disseminated at the time by the Black intelligentsia. So Zora was, um, you know, a mixed bag. Uh, She wasn't really popular. And that's why she dies in poverty. All her books are out of print within five years. Amazing. I thought I sort of knew the Zora Neale Hurston story. And then I watched your documentary and went, wow, there's a there's a lot here I didn't I didn't know about. But there's so many great little touches in there. I love how she would announce herself by saying Queen Zora has arrived. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then her, her sort of partnership with Fanny Hurst, a popular author of the day, a white popular author. That was pretty fascinating as well. Yeah, it must have been kind of humbling for Zora to have to be this woman's secretary, you know. But as I point out in the film, she wasn't a very good secretary. So then she became the driver and they drove (laughs) all over. They went up to Canada and, you know, just the two of them together. It must have been an interesting, interesting time. The black woman and the very notable white woman. She was the most well-paid writer of her time. Not Zora, but Fanny. Fanny, yeah. And I, I'm surprised nobody has re- re- written a series of books where they go around solving crimes. 
think that would be a great idea. That's your job, Craig. Yeah, historical fiction. It's like uh, Sherlock and Watson or something like that. That's an interesting idea. Modern era. Um, Eatonville, for for folks who don't know, is a a small town in Orange County, about halfway between Orlando and Daytona Beach. What is Eatonville like today? I've not been there. Well, you know... um, it was really difficult dealing with Eatonville because people in Eatonville are just like Zora. They're hard-headed. You know, I used to say, oh, I hate being this white person going to Eatonville. And my black scholars would say, it's no different with us. <laughs> they are very much isolated. They're very proud of their history and who they are. And they have but then on the other hand, they're always getting involved in like election fraud or something like that. And Um, Well, that's the Florida part. (laughs) That's the Florida part of it. And, you know, here's another Florida thing, Craig. They really came to um, some prominence when they were trying to expand I-4 and wanted to go through Eatonville and take some land away. And so uh, journalists like yourself did stories and uh, they were able to stop the expansion of the highway so they were interesting people. They were up by your bootstraps kind of people. And I was lucky enough to have them ask me to come and show my film a couple of times. So there's some footage that we think is Eatonville, but then you don't know. It's a footage, you know, with orange groves and people with, uh, with barbecue stands in their backyards and stuff. So... Um, it's funny how I'm not sure, you don't know exactly where the footage is that she shot, except her footage of Cujo Lewis, um, the old slave that was the focus of Barracoon, her mm-hmm. most recently released uh, piece of literature. Yeah, that, that was intriguing. At the end of the book, not to, not to jump around, but at the end of the film where you, you had people talking about how she died and they, they she'd been frustrated by writing these novels that nobody wanted to publish and people started burning her manuscripts and a deputy sheriff said wait a minute i think i remember that she's a writer maybe we shouldn't burn this stuff hmm. are there other manuscripts out there waiting to be published by zora neale hurston there are three missing manuscripts that wow. i know of you know everything was so touchy when i was doing my film and one of the things i don't miss and mention is that the sheriff who puts the fire out says that he then turned these over to a particular person in Eatonville. And he remembered that there were some manuscripts there. So for a while, I was chasing down those people trying to get those manuscripts if they existed. But we do know she wrote one about uh, Madam C.J. Walker, who was a Hmm, hair straightener in Mm -hmm. Harlem. First black millionaire, if I remember right. I do know three uh, novels and manuscripts in particular. Who knows what size they were? But she she talked about them and she pitched them, but they didn't exist. And then there's one that is at the University of Florida, and it's Dora's last days. Uh, she's and she's suffered a stroke. She's still writing. You can tell though that the spark isn't there. The narrative isn't there. It's uh, a jumbled mess. And it was about Herod the Great. The other thing I learned, I didn't realize that she had written Their Eyes Were Watching God, her most famous novel, in Haiti in like a just a rush that she just felt like she had had to get it out. 
after having this seven days. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And after having this, uh, having broken off this relationship with a younger man that I guess was sort of the basis for tea cake. <laughs> Zora was so funny. She's like having this, um, well, she married this one man and their divorce papers because she was like, and the divorce papers are describing her going around and practicing voodoo, you know, on <laughs> on his property to uh, jinx him. He said he had no idea that she'd lied about her age. And she was, I'm trying to remember now. I think, she, I think like, you said she was like 48 and he was 23 or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, boy, what a lie. that had. He was really, he just didn't know what 48 looked like, I guess. <laughs> and he claimed he was, that was voodoo. <laughs> that she voodooed him so he, didn't, he couldn't see straight. <laughs> All right. A little conjuring there. You mentioned that Zora died penniless. She was not a celebrity or anything approaching it when she died. And, and your film, in fact, came out in 2008. And before we started recording, you said it has received more attention in recent years than when it was launched. What do you think her renaissance is owed to? I could say my film. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, now, you know, um, when I started working, other uh, people were working. That one novel that I mentioned reading, I mean, it wasn't a novel. It was a scholarly book, uh, a literary biography. He had, he was an interesting guy. He's deceased now, but he had gone around the country in a Volkswagen van and I even heard he had like eleven children. <laughs> oh my! This is this and is Robert Robert Hemingway, the the guy Robert who wrote the biography. Hemingway, yeah, and um, he really was able to kind of uh, ferret out a lot of information that looked at her literature. That uh, a lot of stuff was missing. A lot of the things that have uh, been released, he he mentions them in his books. You know, there's uh, just a whole different understanding of Zora. And so with that book, then there became more people who were interested. It was kind of like the book left a lot of unanswered questions and people wanted to kind of, you know, fill in those blanks. And I felt the same way. Like I never really quite understood yet, even after reading his book, why she died in poverty. I, he doesn't go into the controversy very much, mm-hmm. but she, Zora was out of step with the time, you know, in the civil rights movement. Uh, she felt black culture was just fine the way it was. And now, now that's, isn't that the biography that also sent Alice Walker looking for her grave? Yeah. yeah. And she, Zora, uh, Alice goes uh, to Eatonville. No, she goes to Fort Pierce. No, actually, I think she went to Eatonville first looking for Zora, and they sent her to Fort Pierce where Zora was buried. And she lies and says that she's Zora's niece. And uh, Zora did have a niece about the same age, but that's kind of uh, how Alice uh, began. And then Alice posted, uh, posted, printed, or wrote uh, a piece called Looking for Zora, I think. And it was published in Ms. Magazine. That kind of helped to start a, a, a renaissance. Another thing that uh, I was told is that by one of my scholars is that Black women would take their eyes for watching God and it wasn't in print and they would Xerox it and hand it to each other. Oh, wow. Really? 
And so while publishers didn't quite understand what, you know, Zora Neale Hurston was all about, Black women did. Hmm. She died in 1960, and you mentioned or referenced briefly that she was out of step in some sense with the civil rights movement and, and Black culture and opinions on both. Explain that in, in more detail, what exactly you mean there. After the Civil War, Black people were being called upon to prove that they were human, that they could read, that they that their art was important. Um, and so during the Harlem Renaissance, this was a time when there was uh, hope for what W.B. Du Bois called the Talented Tenth. And this is after, after there was this feeling that the only thing that uh, Black people could do was work and labor. So there was an effort to assimilate. Mm-hmm. You know, assimilating into white culture meant leaving Black folk from the South, former slaves, behind. They were not uh, what anybody wanted to be represented by. They're dealing with lynching. There's uh, people getting lynched and nobody seems to understand that they're human. And that was one of the literary goals of the, of the this movement in the Harlem Renaissance was to get across to people that Black people are human. And um, yeah, so, you know, she, she treasured, there, yeah. right, yeah, she, her portrayal of Black folk was not what the intelligentsia wanted. And she rarely stepped away from portraying Black people as, she d- didn't portray them as city-fied. They were uh, folksy. Uh, they spoke in dialect. In fact, this one wonderful anthropological piece talks about their language and how they you know, would invent words. Well, you know, that's not what people uh, thought was fine. They wanted Black people to be speaking the King's English. And Zora Neale Hurston, and then beauty. She talked about beauty. She goes into this house and there's a bunch of calendar pictures cut out, pasted on a wall. And she says, that's beauty. It's too much beauty. There's like Black black beauty is an idea of there can never be enough beauty. These things that she came up with were so ahead of her time. You know, even uh, at that time, they're not thinking that Black songs, uh, other than the songs that are uh, the field songs that are uh, the Fisk Jubilee singers are doing these wonderful kind of spiritual sort of songs. So Arniel Hurston is interested in Move It On Over and... Uncle Bud. Uncle Bud. <laughs> Uncle Bud. Uncle Bud's a man, a man like this. He can't get a woman gonna use his fist. Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud. Oh, I'm going to town, going to hurry back. Uncle Bud's got something I sure do like. Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud. Oh, little cat, big cat, little bit of kitten, gonna whoop their tails if they don't stop shitting. Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud, Uncle Bud. <laughs> she kind of, uh, she would speak up too. And so that was the problem. Zora had an opinion. She was strongly outspoken. And during the, uh, in particular, when the Supreme Court decided to integrate the schools, 
1954, Zora Neale Hurston was had a, a treatise published in a newspaper saying this is this is uh, demeaning to black people. Now, I did some research and I found that there was more opposition to the integration of schools by letters that were written to like the Pittsburgh Courier and black newspapers. But, you know, in general, there was a feeling that she was keeping keeping the black folk down. You, you talked about there was some opposition. It, integration is a good goal morally and ethically and so forth. But it, it resulted in some bad things happening to the businesses that catered exclusively to black customers. You know, she was sort of on that side, I would guess, that she felt like if you integrate what happens to black culture that has that has flourished under segregation. Uh, Particular black schools. Right? Although, although I think her argument was wrong about that because she was contending as long as everything's equal. What's the problem with having separate schools? Well, they're not equal. That's the problem. <laughs> Yeah, got, she kind they, of made up her own reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that was the case with her autobiography too, right? Dust tracks on the road. Did that? Did that give you some some heartburn in trying to piece together a film about her with a memoir that's full of stuff that she made up? <laughs> I tried to deal with facts. But that was it's interesting, Craig, because we wanted to have Zora's voice in there as much as we could and be true to who Zora was. So that's why I chose a lot of times to use her words. You know, when you're doing a documentary, you'll interview people and sometimes they've got a lot of stuff wrong, or you, they say things that you don't agree with. But the bottom line is, they are convinced that this is this is what they want to be known for saying and be in the documentary for. So there's a few things that I felt weren't exactly true to fact, but they, you know they help to kind of give a little um, controversy to the film. But it wasn't a far stretch. It was interesting to me that the sort of the structure of the movie where you've got stuff that's very clearly, you know, her footage that she shot and people that knew her talking about her. But then you've also got the this sort of recreation of her doing a radio interview that helps to kind of tie it all together. I just I thought that was very inventive. How did you come up with that? Well, you know, one of the things in documentary is you have to use film footage or else you just got talking heads. And, you know, you can use photos, um, but film footage can really recreate a time. Unfortunately, we were unable to find any audio that would sync to the footage. And some of it, you just work with it. And, you know, you're really, maybe that's a little artist artistry going on. You're really trying to bring your viewer into, immerse them into an experience so you edit things, and I think there's a little piece at the beginning of the film where Zora's walking up to this church, and we got her talking about cornbread. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a little tiny snippet, and nobody could tell that, well, at that point, there really wasn't any audio, but it's uh, just the way she's talking, and you've got a dub over natural sound and things like that, just to make it seem more realistic. But that's why we did the reenactment. It was actually her words. And we went back and forth. Should we use her words and make an actor lip sync? 
And we kind of felt that was just an impossible thing to pull off. And so we had our Zora actor, Kim Brockington, who had, uh, who still does Zora in different um She's in theater in New York. We had her actually use Zora's words. She was really good. I, I liked your narrator, um, uh, who everybody knows from Law and Order and oh, Reba the Mail okay. Lady from Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> yes. Uh, Esapatha McCurson, isn't that how you say her name? Apatha Murkerson. Yes, she was really uh, good. Actually, S. Apatha Murkerson. That's it. Yes. Thank yes, you. she was delightful. You have some really big names in there talking about this stuff. W- were those all interviews you guys lined up, like with uh, Edwidge Danikat and, and uh, Henry Louis Gates, or were those? It's funny that you would mention those two instead of you know, Maya Angelou and Alice Walker. <laughs> yeah, well, and Dorothy West. Dorothy West, too. Oh, Dorothy West. That's really unbelievable. I found Dorothy West phone number and a phone book and you know how long ago that was right because wow. i started that film in 1989 oh my gosh and i called dorothy west who was living in martha's vineyard oak bluffs which is an old um african-american community and dorothy's family had been wealthy so she could afford to but she had this little tiny house with a wood-burning stove. I don't know if she lived there all the time. Dorothy, I called her up, and we're, like, talking on the phone. And, uh, you know, I called her a few times. I said, we're coming to interview you. And as soon as we're in Atlanta, the crew, on our way, because we stopped and did some interviews there, I get this phone call from her caretaker. And she says, Dorothy's not going to do the interview. What? And, you know, we're on our way there. And I said, well, we're still coming, you know. (laughs) What do you say? And I've got a crew. And this is a film crew. Oh, Oh my my. gosh. They were like thousands a day. But (laughs) when we get there, she says, well, okay, Dorothy will do the interview. Henry Louis Gates, I met him at Eatonville. And he was not what he is now, you know. He had, in fact, I don't think he was at Harvard. I think he was at Duke. He was a real Zora fan. I started working with the family, the uh, Hurston estate. Everything sort of dovetailed. Who else did you mention? Oh, Edwidge. Oh, my gosh. Edwidge was so wonderful because we felt like she completed the circle. You know, she's the Mm -hmm. next heir apparent to the celebrated uh, Black woman writer. And I can't remember if I just called her, but we went through a period of time where we didn't have any money. And I contacted her ahead of time. And she was like, oh, yes, I'll be happy to do anything for you. And she was living in Miami. She still lives. Yes, she still lives there. We filmed her and interviewed her finally at the end when we got some more funding at her house in Little Haiti which is also called Lemon City now. These are all interviews just for the film. These are not interviews you guys were taken from from other sources. These were not. Our Alice Walker film, now I was working with Sam Pollard. He was my director. And Sam is a noted, he was the Spike Lee's editor for many years oh, wow. from the beginning. Sam had interviewed Alice for a series he did for PBS. So that was in in the can and it was available through an archive. 
And then Maya, I can't remember where that came from, but that was also canned. But Alice said, I don't want to be interviewed. I've told this story over and over again. And I felt it was really important to get her interview. And we figured out we could use that one. And it worked out great. Zora Neale Hurston at different points in her life lived in Jacksonville with family members. And I'm in the Jacksonville area and we're very proud of that connection. How much detail in the documentary did you go into with with her time in Jacksonville? Well, you know, in Jacksonville, that's when she was married to the young man, the very young man whose (laughs) father had been the uh, founder of the African-American insurance company. Which founded American Beach. Which founded American Beach. She had a brother who owned a butcher shop, I think, in Jacksonville. You know, her whole family, they were all, she had a brother who was a surgeon. She had a brother who had, was this entrepreneur in Jacksonville, had this established uh, shop. She had a brother who was a pharmacist. She had a brother who was a mail carrier. And she had a brother who worked for the railroad in um, Bradenton. And her sister, Zora ends up going to uh, stay with her sister in Baltimore. And her sister had a big house that she'd rent out rooms uh, that had a dining establishment in it. And then Zora, when she went up there, she opened a little, you know, a lot of this is just not in my film. You can't get it all in. She opened what they call the confectionery, which I was told... There's a place where you buy cigarettes and candy. (laughs) (laughs) And Zora opened that? She ran that? She was there then. And we went to the city directory and there was a listing for, I think it was called Hurston and Allen or Hurston and something, Hurston and Turner, something like that. It was a little shop. It didn't actually say that it was Zora Neale Hurston. I can't remember exactly what the link was other than she's there at the same time. It's in uh, a black district that sadly was gone the way of urban removal. I can't remember all the links to that, but we felt pretty confident that it was Zora. Instead of Zora Hurst, Zora Neale Hurston, it was Zora something else Hurston. Mm -hmm. And she had gone up to Baltimore at that time with a traveling theater group, or at least that's what she said. I could never (laughs) find any proof of that. You know, I always tried to find, I tried to be a journalist about it because I am. Were there any films of the performances of some of her plays, like like Mulebone, the one that she co-wrote with Langston Hughes and then took his name off of it? (laughs) Clever girl. Well, I mean, I didn't know if anybody filmed them while they were being performed. Yeah. Yeah, no, she perf- she performed them in uh, Winter Park at that, uh, what's the university, Rollins, I guess. Mm-hmm. Rollins yeah. College. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she uh, was close with the president there. She must have been quite a character. And she also performed it in Chicago at like a, sounds like a YMCA or something. But no, nobody ever, well, if somebody recorded them, we certainly don't have that. There are photos as I used one photo that was definitely from the Library of Congress from her Sun to Sun Singers, I think is what it was called. You've got some great photos in there, pictures I've never seen of her before. Was it hard to track those down? I have an exclusive on some of those. Wow. And the reason, and the reason why is I went to, Zora was married three times, and I went, uh, I met the daughter of her first husband 
who actually was a surgeon also. He was in medical school. She was out in um, Watts. We got to be good friends. And that's how I got the photo. There's a photo of Zora and that man, Herbert Sheen. And that's the only photo of Zora and him. And there were other photos as well. And so I had to agree that I would not distribute those photos except in the film. You know, she died in sort of an obscurity, but she's had this sort of, you know, Zora nonce, I guess you'd call it. Why do you think her her writing and her message has persisted and even sort of, sort of grown in popularity? Well, I think there's more of an appreciation for our folk groups. And I think, uh, you know, as Henry Louis Gates said, and I don't know if he said it in the film or not, sometimes it takes a long time for a book to be embraced. And it took a long time for Zora's book to be embraced because there's a there's a limited white audience that's interested in what was maybe perceived as not racist but stereotypical black folk out in you know poor and in speaking in dialect and for african americans i'm sure if you you grow up and that's why people some of them are returning to the south if you grow up feeling like no i i can't I have to separate from my past. Then the next generation comes along and they want to know about that past. And Zora Neale Hurston did such a great job of documenting that culture. Um, Nobody else could have done it either. So we're very fortunate we have her works today. The documentary is Zora Neale Hurston, Jump at the Sun, our Guest has been Christy Anderson, who produced and uh, put the film together. You can find it on Amazon, Amazon Prime. I will put a link, of course, in the show notes. Explain the title of the film. That comes from what Zora told, Zora's mom used to tell her, Jump at the Sun. And it was her mom telling her, you can do anything, you can be anything, Jump at the Sun. And that's actually used, uh, a lot of people have written in books about it. And I think if you think about Zora, it fits just perfect. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. We appreciate it. Thought I heard somebody say, you're nasty, but you're stinky, but take it away. Oh, you're nasty, but you're stinky, but take it away. I do not want it in jail. Oh, I'm so glad that the lawyers passed. The women in town forgot to wash the ass. Oh, the women in town forgot to wash the ass. Oh, do not want it in jail. Oh, thought I heard somebody shout. Horse up the window, let the stink go out. Oh, horse up the window, let the stink go out. I do not want it in jail. Oh, thus I heard somebody say. Nasty but stinky but take it away. Oh, nasty but stinky but take it away. I do not want it in here. I was not familiar with Zora Neale Hurston before starting this podcast. And Craig, you bring her up constantly, rightfully so. What is your <laughs> attraction to her and her, her story and her work? Okay, so you know how people talk about, oh, I remember exactly where I was when such and so happened, mm-hmm. you know, when the moon landing happened, that kind of stuff. I remember where I was the first time I read one of her books. I was sitting in an auto repair shop, a muffler repair shop in Pensacola in the mid eighties. So all and good stories start. Sure. I know. And I had, a, I, you know, I always, I knew I was going to be there for at least three hours. So I thought, mm-hmm. well, let me take a book. 
Oh, here's one I haven't been able to get into before because it's in dialect, but maybe I'll be able to do it. And and I start reading it and it just sucked me in. And they came out and said, Mr. Pittman, your car's ready. Yeah, give me a minute. <laughs> give me a few minutes. I don't want to put the book down. It's that good. And the, you know, the muffler shop and everything, all the noise and everything just kind of faded away. And I got sucked into this story about this woman growing up in in, you know, small town Florida and her her journey through life and all the things she had to deal with. And especially the scene with the hurricane coming across Lake Okeechobee and waking it up like a monster to, to flood these towns. It's just, just an incredible experience reading that book. And so I said, I need to know more about this person. And the more I've learned about her and I learned an awful lot from, from uh, Christie's documentary, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just, it continues to, to show what a, what a talented and smart and inventive writer she was. She mentioned, she alluded to, you know, going into places where her, her life was in danger and, and just reading about that, her talking about, um, you know, that she would go, she went into this, this one camp where uh, somebody thought she, she was, of course, trying to get stories from people mm-hmm. for, her, for her folklore uh, collection. And some woman thought she was actually flirting with her boyfriend and whipped out a razor to come after her. And another woman in the camp who had become Zora's friend basically said, get out of here. I got this. <laughs> and they started wailing on each other and the, the whole place erupted in a huge fight. And she kind of, you know, she wielding her pearl handled revolver. She snuck out and jumped in her, in her car and drove off. What was the title of that book? That, uh, that I think in? that's from, from dust tracks on a road. She sort of created herself and she's an amazing creation and her, and her books are terrific. I would probably say she's my favorite Florida writer just ahead of John D. McDonald. Wow. Uh, wow. So. High praise. High praise. If folks are interested in Florida authors, Carl Hyacin joined the podcast uh, earlier in the fall of 2020. That's one that folks will go back and be interested in listening to. And and in the archives, a lot of Florida authors with Florida stories are in there as well. And of course, not least of which is our Craig Pittman, a Florida author who we uh, talk to each and every week, of course, and mention all of the books, Cattail and Manatee and Sanity and Oh, Florida and on down the line. Want to remind folks that Welcome to Florida is sponsored by Hip Camp, landowners all across Florida earning up to $1,000 a month listing spots where folks can camp, glamp, and RV. They're doing it with Hip Camp. Hip Camp is a membership that folks who are in Pittsburgh and in New York and gosh, there's people <laughs> probably liter- Texas right now. Yeah. I was going to say, as we, <laughs> as we record this literally freezing to death, it's no laughing matter, but people want to visit Florida. Hip Where camp, it's 80 degrees. Yeah. Is, is <laughs> yeah. kind of like Airbnb for campers, mm-hmm. but they need land. They need landowners. They need people like you with places where folks can pitch a tent or park an RV, just a flat spot, preferably near uh, some sort of natural setting. That's what folks are looking to get out of the cities and into more rural settings and reconnect with nature. And Hip Camp needs you to help their members find those places. And Hip Camp takes care of everything, all the bookings and the insurance. All you have to do is get in touch with them and they will walk you through this process. So if you've got a place to share, get started today. Visit hipcamp.com slash land and they will walk you through this process and you can tell them welcome to Florida sent you. (laughs) 